everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Pactum. I'm Mike Grimes, here today with Pat Abendroff. Hey, Mike. Hey, everybody. And we have got a fantastic new special episode for you this a week. Special and extraordinary. Yes. It is our very first ever Pactum Responsum. We asked for your questions, and you gave them to us. So we're going to take an episode and answer a handful of these questions for you. We're thankful for all of our listeners and for all the questions you've been submitting. And today, Several listeners. Yes. Did I say several again? No, you didn't, but I keep bringing okay. it up. Well, so you know. Listenership is growing, and we're thankful for the expanding Pactum family. Yes, we but are. But at the same time, we have several listeners. We have several according listeners. To, according to Mike Grimes. <laughs> so. so we're going to answer several questions from several of our listeners That's right. Today. This is not an episode on Calvinism. There won't be five questions. I don't think, I don't actually even know how many questions we have. So I, don't I think we have more than several, maybe yep. five, maybe six, don't know. Yep. But looking forward to answering the questions. And I too would say thanks for sending them. Thank you for encouragement, for support. Uh, we're having a great time and we're thankful to be able to have some encouragement in your life. Yeah. Well, let's start off with our first question, and this is actually the very first question that came in uh, from one of our listeners, Jason. He says, with Saddleback Church taking a big leap down the slippery slope by celebrating and ordaining women to their leadership roster, what is the correct response? Now, we did mention this in one of our previous episodes ever so briefly. We mentioned... We did? Yes, we I did. didn't even know that. Yeah, you asked if we had, I had seen that uh, they had ordained some women as... Uh, pastors at Saddleback. Do you remember you told the story about Eric Raymond? I, I do. Episode? Now I remember. Okay. I like it that Jason asks his question, at least the first part of it, with what's the correct response? Because yeah. I'm thinking responsum. Response. So good job thinking in terms of exactly what we were asking you to do, Jason. Right. And he, Jason keeps going on. He says, it seems this is the gateway drug to all kinds of liberalism and apostasy. Usually proponents of women leadership reject 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34 as, quote, applying only to those people at that time, end quote. How do you respond to this and or do you have any good resources on this subject? Ooh, first question and we're starting off spicy. Yes. So that's nice. Good to hear. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. Certainly where we want to start is with what the, what the Bible says regarding God and his creation, uh, that he made male and female in his image. And in addition to that, we have texts like Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Mm -hmm. We are spiritual equals, whether we are men or women, provided we're, tr provided we're trusting in Christ. And so there's absolutely no question whether or not we're spiritually equals when it comes to men and women uh, right. in Christ. We want to make sure we're clear on that. However, we do find in the New Testament a distinction when it comes to roles in the life of the church, right. when it comes to church officers, when it comes to elders uh, in particular, in First Timothy chapter 2, as well as Titus. And so we're, we're going to take that seriously as well. We can be spiritual equals, and yet we can have different roles, different functions in the body of Christ. Yeah. Uh, men and women are important. They both play important roles in the life of the church. There's no question about that. And yet when it comes to the office of pastor, when it comes to the office of elder or overseer, I'm using those interchangeably, mm -hmm. uh, it is reserved for not just men. Um, being a male does not qualify you right, for spiritual right. leadership, uh, contrary to what some might suggest. But one of the requirements is it's for a man. He's yeah. to be the husband of one wife. He's a one woman man. Uh, there's really no question about it. And in first Timothy chapter two, it is expressly clear. So, uh, we can move on to the next question and know that Saddleback church is 
expressly violating the clear teaching, not of Leviticus, for example. This isn't an Old Testament thing. Uh, This is New Covenant, New Testament, post-redemption, however you want to qualify it and say it. uh, They're an express violation of the clear teaching of the New Testament in the Bible. So with that said, uh, we'll just have to stay tuned for what's next because there will be more. Right, yeah. They've already decided that they're in charge. They're the authority, whether it's Rick Warren or his board or council or whatever it is, the congregation. They have decided that they are in charge and their authority is above the authority of the Bible. And so stay tuned. There will be more for sure. Next, it will be whatever the culture doesn't like that the church is doing. uh, it, it, It will come. Yeah. They're simply denying what Scripture says. And it's a slippery slope, as Jason said in his question. And we stay tuned to see what happens next. <laughs> and it won't be good. Now, in one sense, I'd like to say hopefully nothing else. Hopefully there is no uh, more sliding on the slippery slope. Uh, but it's just a matter of time, sadly. Now, to interact a little bit with First Timothy, it is this uh, distinction between men and women when it comes to roles in the church. Uh, it actually is tied to creation. So uh, I suppose someone could say, well, that's Paul because uh, Paul didn't like women very much, which is slanderous. And we have no basis for that or concluding that whatsoever. And we have to remember that when someone is an apostle, they speak with the authority of the one they represent. Mm. And so that's why I like to say the, the entire New Testament is red letter. So if you're an apostle of Jesus Christ, whether you're Peter or Paul or James or John, uh, you actually are speaking with his authority if you're writing scripture. So it's as if Jesus himself said it, if Paul was a true apostle, uh, and certainly Christians have believed that and we would believe that. And so to have women pastors is to be in sin. It is to be in prideful violation of what the Bible clearly teaches. So would you go to church there? I, I absolutely would not go to church there. Yeah. Uh, maybe if it was the only church, uh, I would, and I'd try to do all I could prayerfully and pleadingly to try to get there to be change. But it's not the only church, uh, and I wouldn't go there for other reasons as well. We could do right. yeah. other yeah. episodes on it. <laughs> yeah. But what will happen, apart from God's restraining grace, and I sincerely hope God's restraining grace uh, restrains But what will happen is the next big thing in the culture that the culture um, would be contrary to the church on, uh, let's use homosexuality. Well, next it will be homosexuality is not a sin Mm -hmm. uh, or some other kind of sexual deviation that the Bible is clear about that it's sin and therefore you need a savior if you're that person committing those sexual sins. So homosexuality will be next. Uh, There's a church in town here that really, really, really wants to have women pastors and people talk to me about it behind the scenes. And I say, you know what, as soon as it happens, it's just a matter of time, sadly, that they'll say homosexuality isn't a sin. And if we think further, we can think about what else is uh, not popular in our culture. What else would people frown upon? Yeah. Things like the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. To quote scripture, uh, it is conscious faith in Christ. Well, that's not very popular in the court of public public opinion. And so Saddleback will deny that in time as well. Uh, If something doesn't happen, it's radical. And again, we hope something does happen that's radical. Yeah. Let's shift gears here and go to another question we received from one of our listeners. This one comes from Lucas, who referred to himself as the bearded glamper. 
in his message to us. Do you know what, the, you know what glamping is? I, uh, camping. Uh, you know, well, this is Lucas. He's a church member. Yes, yeah. So, uh-huh. It's luxurious camping. Luxurious which, that's my camping. kind of camping. They sold their house. They, they did. Uh-huh. They live in a camper. Glamping. Glampers. Professional glamping. And, I, and he's got a good beard. Uh, I, he does. If, it's if, legit. If I can say that. I'm telling you. Uh-huh. I can grow a good one, but I don't know if I could stand it that long. I just... Well done, Lucas. Well done. I'm slightly jealous, even though I think I could get there, but I don't know. I will never admit nor state ever that I'm jealous of another man's beard. So, uh, <laughs> Nor have I ever been, so I don't need to admit it. That's right. I can grow one tomorrow, so it's okay. Mike Grimes grows a beard. And like, did you grow a beard like in third grade? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I desperately wanted to shave when I was a kid. Desperately. <laughs> and it is my least favorite thing on the planet now. And yeah. Oof, anyway. All right. Back to Lucas's question. Which Mike, I Mike buys like super special, expensive, <laughs> glamping, <laughs> glamping. What, like glamping, shaving, uh, expensive shaving stuff because I, yeah, he has such a hard time with it, it, is it all. A, it's an ordeal. Lucas asks, is it an established fact that every good Reformed Baptist has as their favorite theologian a Presbyterian? That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very funny. That well, is. I actually know uh, of people who really like Spurgeon and they're Presbyterians. Mm. So I think, I think there probably are people out there. In fact, in fact, um, I think maybe John Owen's favorite theologian may just have been a Baptist. Mm. So I don't know that for sure. But given the fact that John Owen and John Bunyan were friends and John Bunyan was a Baptist... It may just be the case that that door swings both ways. It very well may be. Baptists, Presbyterians, we can all be friends, right? Depends on who you ask. Not on Twitter, I don't think it's true. But some of my very closest friends are Presbyterian. Some are also Baptist. And they are different individuals. They're not schizophrenic. (laughs) On this topic, a little bit off the beaten path, uh, humor aside, there are a couple of great books that I would recommend when it comes to uh, Baptists who should be highly esteemed, I think, theologically. And when it comes to bravery and their heart for the gospel, and this would be true for you if you are a credo Baptist or a pedo Baptist, and that would be William Carey and William Carey's biography that is written by S. Pierce Carey, I believe a relative. And it's a great, great biography, great vacation read. It's quite sizable. It's been a long time since I've read it, uh, 375 pages. But I was edified. I was encouraged. I was surprised mm. by some of the crazy things that happened in his life. Yeah. Um, but I would commend that to readers. It m- motivated me. Uh, and I think biographies have a good way of doing that. Yeah. And I believe it was Derek Thomas who would be reformed and a pedo-baptist. He recommended to me that I read Spurgeon's prayers and Spurgeon's prayer book to find inspiration for prayer. Hmm. So we, we can sometimes get along yes, and can. hopefully we do because we share the most important thing in common, which would be that which is of first importance, which would be the gospel. Let's move on to another question we received. This question comes to us from Greg and the question is, does to be the elect equal saved? I'm kind of glad that I don't know who all of these people are. We figured out who Lucas is because you gave me the a hint. Glamper. We got but it. But I think, okay, is this a Greg who's at our church? Is it this Greg or that Greg? Uh, certainly it's our favorite Greg today. Yes. So thanks for the question. Are they synonymous? So if you are elect, are you saved? And I would answer in the negative yeah. uh, that you're not saved until you believe in Jesus. Yep. 
And so you're one minute enemy status, interestingly enough, in light of Romans. Mm. And then when you believe in Jesus, you're reconciled to God. Yeah. So I'm simply going to say uh, the answer is no. Uh, it is sure to be saved, but it is not saved. Yeah. We are justified by faith and Faith is something that we do. Yes, it is a gift, but it is something that we definitely do. Yes, once again, I repeat myself to stress <laughs> it. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, we're made alive together with Christ, and then we believe according to the unfolding of Ephesians, but we are justified by faith. There is condemnation before there is justification, and the difference is you're resting, you're believing, you're trusting in Jesus. Yeah. Another text that might be helpful would be to actually look at Ephesians chapter 2, and you, you have to conclude we're all like the rest, it says, mm-hmm. uh, dead in trespasses and sins, we are children of wrath, and then before you know it, um, because of God intervening, we are considered rescued, redeemed, saved. Yeah. Uh, and so what we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to be hyper-Calvinists, where somehow we don't see the distinction between these things. Yeah. So if you are elect, you most certainly will believe, uh, but if you are elect, it doesn't mean you are saved. You need to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. That's why we preach the gospel to all people. It's why we're not hyper-Calvinists, which would be a grave error. I do have a book in front of me just to remind myself and maybe to recommend to Greg if he's interested, and it's a book by Ian Murray. It's a small little paperback book of, by Banner of Truth, published by Banner of Truth, called Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism, The Battle for Gospel Preaching. And people had it out for Spurgeon. Uh, some of the, Cal- the hyper-Calvinists didn't like him because he was evangelizing and very evangelistic, and the Arminians didn't like him because he was a five-point Calvinist. Mm. And so Spurgeon is great for balance when it comes to these things. Yeah. We'll include a link to that on our show notes along with the William Carey book that you mentioned a minute ago, Pat. And I'm going to mention more things, more than yes. likely, and we will link to more things <laughs> in our show notes. Yes, several On the resources. Pactum, we will have maybe several resources. <laughs> Let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Elijah, and Elijah asks, how can a Christian defend their faith? How can a Christian talk about why they believe what they believe to someone who is not a believer? Well, we can't defend what we don't own or we don't understand. So that would be the main thing to point out. You need to know the gospel and its parts, if you will. Know the gospel and know it well. And if you know the gospel and you know it well, you can therefore then defend it. Uh, You can therefore then positively promote it. And so I'm going to stop and say, okay, what is the gospel? Okay, it's the good news. It's the good news about Jesus and what he has done. And then I'm going to say, okay, what has he done? And if I can grasp the significance of his life and the significance of his suffering and death and resurrection and ascension, as I, as I know these things and I know them from the Bible and I know them with some depth and precision, I'm certainly going to be able to promote and defend the faith better. And I realize this sounds super obvious, but I think lots of people don't know what the gospel is. Yeah, I think you're right. So in our newcomers class that we have at the church here, we always ask people what the gospel is. And well, we explain it to them, but in order to be a member of this church, you have to know what the gospel is. And we're not trying to keep anybody out, but we want you to know what the gospel is, given the fact that the Bible says it's of first importance. Yeah. So know the parts. I would also maybe progress further from there and say, uh, study the Gospels, Mm -hmm. study the whole Bible, obviously, 
but when you study the Gospels, one thing I love is you see Jesus in action. Mm. You, you see the evangel, the good one yeah. of our evangelism in action, and he's engaging all different kinds of people. He's engaging legalists. He's engaging the licentious. He's engaging religiously deceived people. He's engaging cultist people, the Samaritans, for example. Mm. And I think it gives us a better sense of how to engage different kinds of people with the truth, the truth about Christ, not in any particular order, but so what other than the first one, know, know the gospel and its parts, study the gospel, study Jesus and how he engages people, but we could include the apostles as well. But I'm also going to, if I want to defend the faith, promote the faith, uh, do apologetics, if you will, I definitely want to pray pray for wisdom, pray for opportunities that the Lord might provide, uh, because we can say a lot of different things yeah. to a lot of different people at a lot of different times. And so I want God to help guide and provide, if you will. Yeah. So I definitely want to be praying. Uh, in addition to that, I want to be a good question asker. Yeah. So, so many times Christians think I'm going to do evangelism or mm -hmm. I'm going to do apologetics. And then they, they never listen. Yep. They, they just All talk. the talking, talking. So now faith does come by hearing, not yes. by listening. Right. So you, you can't do evangelistic listening, <laughs> but you can in one sense, because you're hearing what people are saying. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't do any good to misunderstand them or to offer all of these objections or arguments that aren't actually even hitting the nail on the head. Right. So I like to hear people, do they understand what I'm saying so I can understand them? Do they understand what the gospel actually even is? Mm -hmm. What's their hang up? Yeah. Maybe their hang up actually is a peripheral, I can't say the word, peripheral. Peripheral. How do you... Peripheral. <laughs> peripheral. <laughs> it's not even a major issue. Right. So, so be a good listener. I want to be a better, better listener in my life. I love it when I hear, and, and I hear here, capital H here, to be able to go, ah, I, I hear what they're saying, yeah. and I can answer that appropriately. Yeah, That's exciting to be able to do, to do, and I think you can get better and better at that. In addition, I wouldn't claim to be the kind of person who knows everything. Right. It's okay yep. to say I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I think it's a hard one for people sometimes when they're evangelizing or sharing the gospel with someone. They get a question back, and they think, well, if I don't answer this right now, it's not going to happen. They're never going to get saved. They're never going to understand the gospel, and that's it. And they start, well, you know, it, it's okay to say you don't know. It absolutely is okay. Yeah. And sometimes when I've been wanting to share the gospel with people, uh, they end up asking me about all kinds of other issues that are important to me, yeah. social issues, moral issues, and I don't mind talking to the person about the topic, sure, yeah. but my greatest desire is to not have them vote the way I do yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't mind speaking about truth and what is true and what's not true, but as we're talking, I have a greater agenda, yeah. and I would rather offend them with the truth about sin and redemption than I would about my particular preference sure. or on who I'm going to vote for in the next election. Yeah. Yeah. And to keep in mind, you know, it's making me think of something you said in an earlier episode where, you know, our greatest need is not to be helped. We don't need help as individuals from maybe even our friends or others or uh, just some simple help from the church or help from God. What we need ultimately is to be saved. And so when we're talking to these people, that should be a priority that we want them to be saved. So we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Awesome. Yeah. That, yep. That's a great reminder. So with these things out of the way, it, I do think there's a place to know basic objections that people have. Yeah. And so I, I do want to know basic objections so I can have basic answers, yeah. reasonable biblical answers to people's basic objections. And I think this happens over time. It happens over 
making friends with people, getting to know people, not hiding out in a holy huddle or some kind of uh, bubble. I, I want to know what people are talking about, how they're objecting to Christianity, what the objections are, so I can answer them. Uh, I would commend a book to you if you want to dig in a little bit more that I found to be refreshing, simple, but helping to further equip me. And that would be that new book, at least in 2021, it's new because it came out this year, and that's called Surviving Religion 101. It's by Michael Kruger. I would commend Kruger's book uh, to all of our listeners. I'm planning to read through the whole thing. I've just uh, dabbled in it. I might even use it for a class here at the church because he's answering basic objections. And it's good to be able to do that. Nothing new under the sun, uh, as Solomon would have us to know. And it's certainly true when it comes to defending the faith, doing apologetics, evangelizing people. I want to know the answers to the questions that they're probably going to ask. All of that to say... You can answer all of their questions, and it doesn't change their hearts. Right. So we do have an agenda, and that the agenda ultimately is gospel proclamation. Yep, absolutely. Let's take a short break before we go to our next short break. Question. I mean, we, it's like commercial time here. Okay, we're, we're really getting up there in the podcast rings. We need to do a commercial, a commercial for ourselves, and that is, uh, don't forget you can find us on social media. We want to let you know that we're on Twitter and we're on Instagram. You can follow us there. You can get in touch with us there. That's one of the reasons we want to bring that up. Is you know, you may not do the email thing. So if you have questions, Mike's for, looking at me because I do email. Well, I do email as well. But you know, okay. some people they're like email. What is that? So if you're on Twitter or Instagram, you can follow us on Twitter. We are uh, at the Pactum, and on Instagram we're the Pactum Theology. You can follow us on both of those locations. If you have further questions you want to ask that we can utilize in later Pactum Responsum episodes, feel free to send us questions on Twitter or Instagram. And of course, you can get in touch with us on email connect at thepactum.org. And just so everybody knows, a special shout out to Aaron Pilly who makes our Twitter and Instagram pages look nice because neither one of us have the artistic skills and abilities required to make things look so nice. Speaking of advertising, Mike, when are we going to do our GoFundMe page uh, for uh, better transportation as we do the Lord's work? Yes, well, uh, we can start that now. Or well, let's have one of our listeners start it so it doesn't look so self-serving, right? <laughs> fair, fair enough. I can't remember if Jesse Duplantis ever got his $54 million for his did. jet or not. I bet he did. He had to have. I sure hope he did not get it. <laughs> let's get back to our questions now. And yeah, well, next, let's do that. Yeah. This next question comes from Patrick, and he wants to know, in your opinion, what is the greatest threat to the church today? I think the greatest threat to the church today is not knowing what is of first importance, yeah. which is the gospel, according mm-hmm. to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't know that it is of first importance, and if we do, hopefully we do, we don't know what it is. Yeah. So, so many times people don't know what the gospel actually is. It shows up. People do what they say is expository preaching. They do what they say is biblical ministry, all of these different things. And yet so many times they're not clear about what the actual gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is. It shows in their preaching. It shows in their ministries. And all of this leads to things like moralism, neonomianism, and I think it ultimately leads to liberalism. It makes me think of Machen in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, when we yeah. did that series. Yep. If you, as the church, don't know what your existence is actually all about, yep. which is gospel promotion and defense, yep. you're, you, you are going to crash and burn. So yes. the greatest threat to the church is lack of knowing its identity as gospel promoters and defenders, and I think 
evangelicalism, even conservative, quote-unquote, Bible-believing evangelicalism is rank with this, Mm -hmm. which is why I do really appreciate that book that we promote a lot, that book by Mike Horton called Christless Christianity. Yeah, fantastic resource. Let's move into our next question, and this one comes from Franz. And Franz wants to know, he's wondering about the King James Version. Do you know that band Franz Ferdinand? Of course I don't. I like Franz Ferdinand, at least that popular song they had. I remember Sean Murray, the wakeboarder. Um, Sean, if you're listening, hey, buddy, been a long time. Uh, <laughs> he used to coach my son. Anyhow, all of that to say, uh, one, one video that he put out back when you had to buy videos, uh, when you had to buy the, what are they even called? Uh, when you had to buy DVDs. Oh, yeah, DVDs. <laughs> um, so his song, they would always pick different songs for their, their section. Uh-huh. And I think he had a Franz Ferdinand song, and it was catchy, and I like it, and I can't remember the name of it. Huh. Uh, it was called Take Me Out. Take Me Out. So thanks, Franz, for your question. What is your question? The question Franz? is, wondering about the King James Version crowd that says we, quote, reformed crowd have the wrong or tainted versions of the Bible. We have the Nestle Allen transcript, and they have the accurate Textus Receptus version, claiming that the KJV has a lot more verses and words that are missing from other versions, making them false Bibles. Uh, He's wondering if we could do a podcast about this, or at least talk about this, maybe the history of how we got the Bible, the different versions, uh, maybe including the Westcott and Hort controversy. Well, we won't do a whole episode on it. Maybe we'll do it on Bible sometime, or translations. But for now, friends, I think the King James-only movement is something that is problematic. Obviously, it seems like you do as well. I think it is a matter of, we're trying to have integrity. We're trying to say, okay, if the oldest manuscripts do not contain these words, Mm -hmm. the best manuscripts do not contain these words, well, then let's not include them. At a minimum, let's put them in brackets or italics and put a marginal note, as some translations do. These words are not found in the earlier manuscripts, something like that. So I think it's a matter of integrity instead of saying, well, let's keep this stuff in, even though it's suspect Mm -hmm. um, because we need it to defend the faith. That actually is not what we're trying to do. We want to have, to stress it again, integrity. So I'm not a scholar on these things. Uh, I've read a number of books, had to for seminary, thankful for that. Uh, But what we're trying to do is be honest and earnest with what is actually to be in the Bible and what's not to be in the Bible. Now, I should say, if you have a scholarly preference and you say, I I prefer this text over the other text and you have a good scholarly argument for it, Hmm. fair enough. Sure. Uh, We can do that. But King James only ism is another thing altogether. Mm -hmm. And it's more of an ism. It gets pretty crazy. There have been people who visited the church here and they said, well, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. And I mean, it gets pretty wild. Yeah. So sadly, there was a woman here visiting not that long ago, and she made it into our bookstore before the service, and then she was leaving. So I wanted to show some care and concern, and and I asked her what was going on, and she said, well, you have other translations you have in your Mm. bookstore, not the King James Version. And thankfully, she was willing to talk a little bit, and we talked, and I was able to ask her basic questions about the gospel. And she didn't know the answers. Mm. Uh, This is a woman who reminded me, she probably was my mother's age, Mm. and she didn't know basic answers about the gospel. And I said, well, you could use whatever translation you'd like to hear. Um, All translations are welcome (laughs) sort of thing, uh, except the New World translation. I didn't say that. (laughs) But I said, but I promise you, I will teach you 
from your, I, I will teach you what's in your King James Bible when it comes to the truth about Jesus. Yes, yeah. And so it was kind of a heartbreaker. She did make it through the service only to leave a nasty voicemail at her church later. So mm. those things are heartbreaking. Uh, what we want to do is be honest with what should be in the Bible, what shouldn't be in the Bible. Uh, and if it's not in older, better manuscripts, then let's, let's communicate and be honest about that. Now, some common objections from KJV only people would be, well, you know, your translation denies the deity of Christ Mm. or denies the Trinity or something like that, which is absolutely, positively, patently false. False. Now, it may be true that you don't have a slam dunk Trinity verse in one verse in Mm -hmm. 1 John, but we don't need it because the Bible is Trinitarian and you can clearly prove uh, the triune nature of our God from other texts. And so it ends up being very, I think, dishonest in the, in the portrayal of things. And we don't lose major doctrines. In fact, we have major doctrines substantiated by legitimate texts. And so that becomes significant. So I wouldn't mind discussing Mark 16 a little bit because uh, most translations either don't have it included, the longer ending after verse 8, or they put it in brackets or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so when you read Mark 16, 8, it says, they went out and fled from the tomb, that would be the empty tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, final words of the book, for they were afraid Hmm. and it ends and I love the short ending and I love the short ending because I think it's supposed to be there because of manuscript support but also when you study Mark's gospel account and you see the reaction of fear there's actually a pattern that occurs. Mm. And so in chapter four, after Jesus calms the sea, chapter four, verse 41, uh, they became very much afraid So Jesus does something supernatural, they're afraid. Then in chapter 6, verse 50, when Jesus walked on water, the disciples were terrified. Mm. Supernatural, fear. Then we move on, chapter 9, verse 32, after Jesus foretold his death and resurrection, the disciples were afraid to ask him about it. Mm. And then chapter 11, verse 18, one more, as a result of Jesus' powerful, unique, extraordinary, unrivaled teaching, the chief priests and scribes, it says, were afraid of him. Hmm. So you see, there's the pattern. pattern. And and it's built in, and the pattern comes, and then you have empty tomb. What do they do when they see the empty tomb? They're afraid. Yeah. Oh, because something supernatural happened. It wasn't grave robbers. Right, right. Uh, it, it actually is a support for the resurrection if you read it in context. Yeah, makes total sense. It's a, it's a dramatic ending. Yeah. It's a great, great ending if you know what he's up to. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, we could dig in a little bit more when it comes to resources. So, friends, I would commend to you James White's book, The King James Only Controversy. Yeah. It's written at a layperson's level. It's been a long time since I read it, but he does a good job of responding to KJV only-ism. If you, and if you want to do further scholarly research on such things, I can remember years ago uh, having to read and be tested on Bruce Metzger's book, The Text of the New Testament, and he walks us through manuscript families and what should be in, what shouldn't be in, rationale as to why. That's a good resource, and there certainly are other ones, but that's probably enough for now. One, fi- one final note about this is to do a little bit of research 
regarding Erasmus mm. and what he did when it comes to when he didn't have a Greek text uh, that was complete and he didn't have resources and the fact that he took the Latin Vulgate and then translated it into Greek mm. so he, ha- he could have a Greek text to use for translation. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's, not a, that's not a good way to do things. Yeah. And you might think you're defending the faith, but now all of a sudden our faith is based upon something uh, that is not worthy of our faith. Sure, yeah. So you're trying to help Christianity, but you're not actually helping Christianity. One, one final thing. I promise. One more. I promise. One more thing. And, uh, and that would have to do with just some of the total crazy goofball stuff that's promoted by King James only is mm. and things like there was a book when I was in seminary uh, called New Age Bible Translations or something like that. Mm. Gail Ripplinger, I think was her name. And th- she she created a stir and her stuff was absolutely when you just looked into it a little bit and people like James White did and other uh, scholars, it was complete goofballism. Mm. And so, you know, you quote someone, whether dealing with Westcott and Hort and you have someone say, we're, it's as if we're in a whole new age Mm. of scholarship. Mm. Oh, new age Bible translations kind of stuff. It's just Sophomoric. It's not even sophomoric. Just, just downright dishonest mm. and deceptive. I think she. Her, I think her degree was in home economics. Mm. Uh, so quite the New Testament scholar. Yeah, yeah. No offense to people who have a degree in home economics. That's true. No offense. No offense to beauty school dropouts from last episode either. <laughs> That's true. Well, let's wrap up with a final question. And our final question uh, for this episode of the Pactum Responsum comes from Eric, and he says, "I was wondering if you'd be able to take some time on an episode and break down the major differences between covenant theology." versus dispensationalism for those of us who are unfamiliar with covenant theology and are, quote, leaky dispensationalists like John MacArthur. Ooh, that's a great question. So I I have some homework for you, Eric, and it's very simple. All you need to do is go watch The Village. The Village. By M. M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan. What a a strange name. If you don't know M. Night Shyamalan, maybe you do because of The Sixth Sense. I see dead people. What a weird show. Huh? Yeah. I, lo- I, I love rite of passage opportunities to show that to my kids <laughs> when they get older. Uh, that was, that's kind of a classic. So yeah. I don't think The Village is worthy of the label classic. Yeah, I don't think no, it's that it's great not, of a movie. It's not. But kidding aside, I actually do think it's a helpful movie. And this is a spoiler alert, so you might want to push pause and then go watch it and then come back. But what happens is these people develop this sort of like commune to protect their children from the bad evils of the outside watching right. world. Yep. And so that, that's, that's the mystery. Yeah. And so they, they create these opportunities to like werewolf kind of things to scare everybody so they don't go out into the, into the forest yeah. and see the bad color yeah. to this day when we see red flowers on mountain bike trails. <laughs> we're like, my boys are like, dad, the bad color. Bad color. <laughs> so anyhow, but when true crisis hits, when something, someone is shot or something like that, they need some special medicine. Yeah. Then when they have a real genuine significant need, they send someone over the fence yeah. to the outside world because they actually need real help. Yeah. So I use it as, as an illustration because when true crisis hits, 
in evangelicalism, for example, let's say when it comes to the doctrine of justification mm-hmm. and N.T. Wright is compromising it and in effect denying the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, for justification, denying sola fide, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Where do evangelicals go? Well, they, when they, after they scramble and they figure out who has dealt with this before, who knows the answers, who knows how to maneuver uh, historically and theologically guess where they go covenant theology they go to covenant theology and the covenant theologians because who owns this doctrine if you will by god's grace who fought for it who battled for it who scrapped for it Mm -hmm. it would be those who affirm what i'm going to call classic covenant theology and so we're going to have to go to john owen or we're going to have to go to those who've gone before us who were covenantal Mm -hmm. in their theology and this becomes significant uh, become significant because we're warned about the boogeyman and the boogeyman, that monster over there actually is not the boogeyman. He's actually our friend yeah. who can help us. Yeah. Covenant theology is your friend. It's not your enemy, but we're warned sometimes when we're at dispensational seminaries or we listen to dispensational teachers that somehow it's like the worst thing ever. Oh, covenant theology, boogeyman. It's bad. It's awful. Don't go there, right. but it's actually your friend. Yeah. And it's your friend because it understands the gospel and it understands justification correctly. Yeah, and this is something we could obviously spend an entire episode on. We don't have that time on this episode. But we need to. We need need to to for sure. So thanks, Eric, for the question. But could you just briefly, in a nutshell, if possible, uh, give us a little bit of what covenant theology is? So covenant theology is not tied to a millennial view. Yeah. That, that's the first thing we need to yeah, understand. Yeah. So, so many times, and I was taught this by many people, it was almost as if covenant theology equals amillennialism mm-hmm. or maybe postmillennialism. Yeah. Uh, and th- the fact is, it's, it's a category error, I would say. Yeah. First and foremost, when you read actual covenant theologians, first and foremost, it is about the covenant of works and it is about the covenant of grace. Mm. We could also introduce the pactum, the, pactum, uh, the yeah. covenant of redemption yeah. in all of this. So really there are three, but first and foremost, fundamentally there are two. So God has a law that he requires to be kept for justification yeah. And that's called shorthand covenant of works uh, that Adam was under. And he was to do what God said to gain eternal life, to gain justification on behalf of those he represented. We know it doesn't end well. It ends with calamity and it leads to condemnation, Romans chapter five. And so then what? Now what? Now, how is it that anyone could ever possibly be justified? The only way it could ever possibly happen would be if we were justified by grace alone, Mm -hmm. through faith alone, in the finished work of the last Adam alone, who does this to gain. He he does uh, what God requires to gain justification uh, for those he represents. So that's covenant theology. Yeah. Um, and all of this was established before the foundation of the world as far as a purpose and a plan. According to Ephesians 1, we would have the pactum, uh, the triune God, uh, covenanting, if you will, that these things would happen. So first and foremost, covenant theology is not the boogeyman. First, uh, secondly, it's not a millennial view. Yeah. Uh, you, how about this? You, you, I'm going to give you permission, uh, everybody who's listening, to believe in a future for Israel and be a covenant theologian. Yep. Yeah. So you can do both yes. uh, of these things. Now, we can talk about how covenant theology might affect your view of 
Israel the nation mm. and Israel with its sacrificial system and priests. We, we should talk about that in a different episode. You could tune into our episode on Zionism yep. to, to think through some of those issues. Yeah. So we will do a whole episode, if not episodes, on this yeah. because it really is an important matter. When people get this wrong, they tend to get justification wrong yeah. or, or be weak on it at a minimum. Sure. Yeah. So, but in the meantime, if you'd like, this is what I wrote my doctoral dissertation on. And so we can link to that yep, with the other that. several things. Other several things. Otherwise, you can go to omahabiblechurch.org. And if you pull up my bio, there's a link there to my dissertation. And you could at least begin becoming familiar. I'm basically trying to argue for these very things, yeah. uh, that if you don't like covenant theology, basically you should, mm. and it might not be what you thought it was. Yeah. And since you did ask about John MacArthur, Eric, uh, you will find his name in my dissertation and you will find him talking about in a positive light, yep. the covenant of redemption and the covenant of redemption is owned by Covenant theology. Yeah. So uh, I'm not critiquing him in my dis dissertation. In fact, I'm using him trying to win people over like yourself uh, to the good side um, where there is no bad color uh, when we're hearkening back to the village. Yeah. We'll make sure to reference to Pat's dissertation along with the other resources we mentioned in today's episode. We're going to wrap things up for today. We're thankful for each of you listening and for those of you submitting your questions. Again, you can continue to send us questions, and we'll have more Pact and Response some episodes here and there. You can send those to us on Twitter, on Instagram. You can also email them to us at connect at thepactum.org. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on The Pactum. Pactum.